Hey lunatics, you're listening to Let Them Eat Grass, a podcast dedicated to healthy farms, good food, and sustainable living. I'm Austin Williams, your erstwhile farmer and podcast host. If the past five years of farming have taught me anything, it's that everything is connected to everything else. I mean, so much of what feels out of our control is actually the direct result of things entirely within our control. Amen? I'm dedicating this show to you, the lunatics, the crazies, who have chosen to opt out, to stray beyond the safe and familiar confines of grocery store walls to support a farmer. And not just any farmer, a local farmer whose mission it is to heal the land and nourish the community. When 100% of us eat and only 1% of us farm, we have a math problem. Help me do the math by sticking around, listening closely, and voting with your forks to support real food. See you soon. The geographic antipodes of my town can be found in the southern Indian Ocean at 38 degrees, 58 minutes, 30.6 seconds south, 87 degrees, 15 minutes, 21.5 seconds east. In case you are wondering, the antipodes of any given coordinate of lat long on a globe are diametrically opposite it. Imagine poking a long needle perfectly perpendicular through the globe. Where it comes out on the other side is the Antipodes. Comparable to Point Nemo in the South Pacific, my country's Antipodes is a wildly remote place. The nearest inhabited land is an icy, windswept volcanic protrusion over a thousand nautical miles away, which French explorers deftly nicknamed the Desolation Islands. The only year-round residents are a forlorn group of excitement-starved climatologists. Situated equidistant between Madagascar and Perth, Australia, you'd have to travel 2,000 nautical miles from my antipodes to talk to a non-scientist. It's located in up to 10,000 feet of deep waters chilled off the coast of Antarctica, which, in the words of Tony Abbott, the former Prime Minister of Australia, is as close to nowhere as you can possibly be. So bad news. Digging a hole through the center of the world from my country the U.S., does not end up in China. Only people from parts of Argentina and Chile can claim that honor. In fact, the antipodes of my entire country falls in hushed silence over the Indian Ocean between Madagascar and Perth. There are no land borders. There is only open ocean. There are no people, no written or oral histories, no culture, no wars, no religions, no droughts, no achievements, and no dreams. The list could go on indefinitely because, well, there is nothing save for plankton and the occasional migrating flock of seabirds. It's as opposite a place from my town as can be found. You know, I've long been fascinated with opposites and extremes. I see the same fascination in my young daughters as they seek out extreme experiences. During the Christmas bomb cyclone of 2022, as the winds howled by at negative 31 degrees for three straight days, my daughters shrieked in delight as they made dashes outside to feel the deep cold. And that level of cold is almost beyond communication. When I left the house to take care of the cows and sheep, my eyeballs hurt. They didn't sting, they hurt. What grips me so much about my antipodes is that it's not just on another continent that speaks a different language and uses a different currency, it's that it's nowhere at all. Now, I was born into a family which nurtured me. I had solid ground under my feet. I had mentors. I made mistakes and I learned from them. I developed my own personhood. I came to grapple with the uncomfortable history of so many invisible things just under my feet. And on the opposite side of the world, 
I would have died within minutes of acute hypothermia. So the invisible things, you know, what lies beneath the soil is generally invisible unless we stick our hands into it. It doesn't take much sifting of American soil before you run into one invisible thing, race. Unsurprisingly, I learned about race from a very distant, middle-class, white perspective. Growing up in the upwardly mobile suburbs of St. Louis, the son of a pharmacist and a lawyer, I had many privileges only now I can fully appreciate. There was always food in the fridge, always a parent at home when I was home, and so, so many more. None of the buildings in my hometown were even old enough to have witnessed the civil rights movement in the 1960s. There are no visible reminders of acrimonious race relations, but as the crow flies, 20 miles away is a street in St. Louis called Delmar Boulevard. Delmar Boulevard bustles with excitement. It's a great place to eat, buy records, go to a concert, or drink boba tea with your friends. It's also a racial demarcation line which cuts the city in two. The BBC made a segment on the divide in which they noted that north of Delmar, the median home value is 73000 The median household income is 18000 10% of the population has a bachelor's degree, and 98% of the population is African-American. South of Delmar, the median home value is $335,000. The median household income is $50,000. 70% of the population has a bachelor's degree, and 73% of the population is white. It's the result of decades of legal, de jure, racist segregation policies. And even though the red lighting policies have been struck down, the racial compositions in the neighborhoods is a testament to the uncomfortable history of race in America. I never learned any of this in school. So there's two Missouri counties I want to tell you about. When I got offered the once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to manage a farm in Howard County, Missouri, with absolutely no farming experience to my name, I gladly obliged. Little did I know that I was going to be stepping back in time to a different period in race relations in our country's history. I was already managing a farm in Cooper County, which is an adjacent county just south of the Missouri River. The owner, my boss, bought another farm as a long-term real estate investment in Howard County. He figured we would run our flock of 1,250 sheep on it seasonably, or seasonally from July to November. The property actually had three houses on it, but only two of which were inhabitable for renters. I spent time building a relationship with the renters, and in time, they let me into their lives. I've had a pretty good working relationship with the tenants in Cooper County over the years. One was the previous owner of the property and a hobbyist welder, and the other, other was literally a cowboy who worked for the rodeo. We were civil and courteous with each other. My tenants in Howard County were also working class, but even more so. One was a long-haul trucker, another was a plumber, and yet another was a construction temp worker. Over the years, I've been directly threatened with extortion and litigation, indirectly threatened with physical violence, and had a barn on property burned down due to suspected arson. Nothing provable, but just suspected. It's been a wild ride. I'll always remember one family, though. I had heard of you know good old boys before I moved to Mid-Missouri, but it wasn't until I started working um, in Howard County that I met one. This guy had a reputation around town. All the lo locals knew him. You know... Every time I'd mention his name around town, I'd get this reaction, which was a mixture of familiarity and embarrassment. And he was nice to me at first. He had a gangster mentality, which I realized later on meant that he was never actually doing anything for free. Even times that he was, quote, helping you, or, quote, helping his son, who was paid by me, to do things on the farm, uh, he was actually just keeping a mental tab to throw at you in case things went south, and go south between us they did in spectacular fashion. 
But more importantly, it was in talking with this man, his family, and their friends that I realized that not everyone in the U.S. has racial amnesia. Not everyone was trying to sugarcoat the past and look at people with colorblind eyes. I had never heard anyone use the N-word until I moved to Howard County. This man had no qualms about it, and neither did his children. For a while, I thought I could just be confined to this family. Then I got to talking one day to a local acquaintance of the family who was herself a teenager. I will never forget her words. Sometimes they would just throw racial nuggets into an otherwise harmless conversation like this one. And just to quote her directly, to quote her directly, she said uh, that she thought slavery should still be a punishment for black people, but just the bad ones, though. And upon hearing that, I was mortified. I was shocked. I was literally at a loss for words. She said this in the midst of other members of her family, and it went unchallenged. I managed to squeak out some pitiful attempt at a disagreement, but on what shared logic and ethics can people with those deeply racist attitudes be argued with? Over there, time stopped in 1860. At least, that's what somebody I know said. Several years later, I was still processing the racial local attitudes when I was talking to a sheriff who went to my church. He had grown up in Cooper County. I said to him, you know, I've been working a farm on either side of the Boonville Bridge in Cooper County and Howard County, and I just wanted to get your opinion since I knew you grew up here, and I don't know, does it seem like to you that I didn't even get to finish my sentence before he finished my thought? And he said that they're in two different worlds. Yep. Here it's 2023, and over there, time stopped in 1860. Here, people actually think, should I do this? And over there, they think, let's just do it and see what happens. I've joked many times with the other deputies about how much our caseload would fall if the Boonville Bridge fell into the river. I'll let that sink in a while. I should explain that there is only one bridge that connects Howard to Cooper County. You can get from one to the other using different highways, but it takes much longer, and by that point, you might as well stay in the larger metropolitan areas within 30 minutes or so. So in the beginning, when I moved to Cooper County from out of state, I learned from my farming partner that the three weathered sheds on the front lawn of the rental house used to be slave houses. I did what anybody would do when confronted with that uncomfortable fact. I buried it out of my conscious daily thought. If I had sat with the uncomfortable thought just a little bit longer, I would have had to reckon how my opportunity to manage a farm as a white citizen in 2023 was literally standing on the backs of black slaves who had been denied that same privilege in 1860. Later on, I had a conversation with my erstwhile landlord, whose family used to own the farm I now managed. He corrected the account. He said black people did live in those sheds, but they weren't slaves. The real story was more recent, approximately in the 1970s. But how could there be a hundred-year confusion gap in local memory? There's a big difference between black slaves and black free citizens, I thought. But it turns out that these black Cooper County citizens in the 1970s lived like black Cooper County slaves in the 1860s. They weren't slaves, my landlord said, but they certainly lived like slaves. He was old enough to remember seeing them as a teenager as he worked the farm with his extended family. These black men didn't have driver's licenses. They ate the table scraps from the white family after the meal was finished. In the depths of winter, they lived in a shed with no insulation. The white owner would drive one of them to town every once in a while so they could buy whiskey. And one of them would pick his banjo on the back step of the house when the work was done. No one really knows what happened to them. I've asked around. They've faded from collective local memory. So, it's a tale of two counties. The Antipodes, so to speak. North of the Missouri River is Howard County where the median home value is $235,000. The median household income is $58,596. 28% of the population has a bachelor's degree, and 91% of the population is white. 
South of the Missouri River is Cooper County, where the median home value is $210,000. The median household income is $55,711. 23% of the population has a bachelor's degree, and 90% of the population is white. The demographics are nearly identical, but don't tell that to us. We think we're opposites. We look across the mighty Missouri River to the other bank and see a land removed from time. We see a county as far removed from us as our icy, desolate antipodes in the southern Indian Ocean. But in imagining our neighbors over there as the racists, we heap injustice upon injustice as we ignore the deep tectonic plates of race which have crashed against one another so often in our local history. The reverberations still echo through to the present day. What may feel like little tremors to us are likely more palpable to the nameless black men who inhabited the sheds which stored all our farm's extra wood. We ought to feel uncomfortable. In January of 1865, a meeting took place between Union General William Sherman and 20 leaders of the black community in Savannah, Georgia. Four days later, Sherman released Special Order Number 15, which is now popularly referred to as 40 Acres and a Mule. It promised the newly freed slaves a strip of land extending from the Charleston Islands in South Carolina to St. John's River in Florida, extending 30 miles back from the sea. Each former slave could claim 40 acres, and an addendum to the order allowed the army to lend mules to the new settlers. And if that wasn't wildly radical enough, no white people were allowed to reside in this newly declared area whatsoever. By June of that same year, there were 40,000 freedmen living there on 400,000 acres of land. But by the fall of 1865, Lincoln had been assassinated by a Southern sympathizer. Lincoln's successor, Andrew Johnson, was also a Southern sympathizer, and he overturned uh, Special Order Number 15. It's hard to fathom how differently our country's racial relations could have turned out had 40 acres and a mule not been overturned. Imagine if slaves had been given access to land and property ownership. But instead of owning land, freed slaves were offered a crude alternative, sharecropping. They got to live as free men for a time during Reconstruction, but once that ended, their lives picked up as if slavery had never been extinguished. If Lincoln could have lived out the rest of his term as president, I probably wouldn't be writing this right now. It's very unlikely he would have overturned Sherman's order. It's almost undeniable race relations would have been astronomically better than they are now. But granted, imagining Lincoln as the literal white knight of race relations isn't historically accurate either. We can't forget Lincoln's reaction to the Indian braves hanged by a kangaroo court in the humid Minnesota summer of 1862. An uprising had taken place in response to the U.S. government's failure to abide by the treaty they had signed with the Dakotas to provide food and money in exchange for moving them onto the reservation. The previous fall harvest had failed, and the winter had been terrible. People were starving. A U.S. government warehouse was socked with food, but the payment was late. The white Indian agent was a stickler for policy, which is that the food and money had to be distributed together, no compromises. One trader, Andrew Myrick, who will go down in history as the sayer of the most dehumanizing thing at the most inopportune time in human history, said something. In response to the Dakotas complaining at a meeting that the white people were not respecting their land rights and were letting their cattle graze on the reservation, Andrew Myrick commented to the interpreter, Well, tell them that if they want it, then let them eat their own grass. At first, the interpreter didn't even want to relate to the Dakotas because he knew what the connotation was, which is that that the Dakotas were like cattle. But once he sheepishly did, the Dakotas present erupted in incensed shouts. The killing and massacres began soon afterward. Andrew Myrick was one of the first casualties and was found with grass stuffed inside his mouth. The kangaroo court which followed tried 392 prisoners and sentenced 303 to death. 
Abraham Lincoln and a trusted group of his government lawyers intervened from a distance and reviewed the trial transcripts, commuting the death sentence of 264 of them. He allowed 39 death sentences to stand, which were carried out by hanging. Commenting on due process, Carol Chomsky, an associate professor at the University of Minnesota School of Law, said, The trials of the Dakota were conducted unfairly in a variety of ways. The evidence was sparse, the tribunal was biased, the defendants were unrepresented in unfamiliar proceedings conducted in a foreign language, and authority for convening the tribunal was lacking. More fundamentally, neither the military commission nor the reviewing authorities recognized that they were dealing with the aftermath of a war fought with a sovereign nation and that the men who surrendered were entitled to treatment in accordance with that status. From Missouri to Georgia to Minnesota, no one person can claim responsibility for or savior to our country's record on race relations. No one can claim that they haven't benefited from or conversely been harmed in some way by American race relations of the past 170 years. The fault lines of race run deep and they connect us all. While some may think of our neighbors as opposites, of race as inconsequential, or racism as something that happens over there, I for one know that the truth is a lot more uncomfortable than that. Way more uncomfortable than that. Since getting into agriculture, I've seen the powerful bond it creates in a community. I see the power of farming to restore, replenish, and nourish. It's a powerful antidote to the entertainment-focused society we've been conditioned to expect and desire. Wendell Berry summed up the pervasive fear of an entertainment-based American culture in one poetic line. He said, be afraid to know your neighbors and to die. But farming has also been a weapon at times. It's been used as a tool to deprive others of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And for that, I lament. I know generations of accumulated agricultural knowledge were lost when the slaves were robbed of the new territory they were promised. It was again robbed when banks could refuse a loan to a family if they lived in the wrong section of town, which almost always happened to be a black part of town. And if you couldn't get a loan, how could you get a farm? God forgive us. Keep voting with those forks, lunatics. Since we're all in this together, I'm supporting my brother and sister farmers with SEO content strategy as they migrate online. I help small to medium-sized farms somewhere on the direct-to-consumer trajectory be less busy, attract loyal customers, and sell unforgettable food. If that sounds like you, or you know someone who needs help, let me know. You can schedule a discovery call or just find more information at my website, www.agriculturecopywriting.com Sound design was by the bodacious Brandon Nelson Artwork by the radical Rebecca Raven and hosting, script writing, editing recording and production by the ostentatious Austin Williams See you again next time